So that roaming bull in Cleveland was a cow? How did the police get that wrong? It's one of the stories we'll be talking about on Today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Lisa Garvin, Courtney Astolfi, and Laura Johnston. Layla Tassi has a day off. Let's go. If the fervor is strong enough in Cuyahoga County to defeat the sinister issue one ballot issue that is aiming at torched, aimed at torching democracy in this state, could that make all the difference in a low turnout election? Laura. Yeah, it could. We really don't know what kind of turnout we're going to see. Last year in August, remember that extra primary we had because of the gerrymandering and the Supreme Court decisions? We only had about 8%. And that's what the Republicans are banking on. That's what they've said in their meetings. That's what Frank LaRose thinks. But elections officials in Cuyahoga County think we could see turnout as high as 50%. We're seeing a lot of people requesting those absentee ballots. And there's no real bar here because Ohio hasn't had a statewide vote on a ballot issue in August since 1926. So if we get a bigger turnout, especially in urban counties that tend to be more Democratic, this could be a huge difference for the campaigns. You're starting to hear more Republicans that are against this because they realize this isn't a right-left thing. This is about the power of the people. Uh, And there is a sense that seems to be growing. This could actually go down, even though the people behind it have tried to make it a conservative thing. This is to stop out-of-state liberals from messing with the Constitution when it's out-of-state people who are messing with the Constitution. Exactly. And and, you know, one sense of that, Frank LaRose had an overnight announcement that he's running for the U.S. Senate, which I think surprised everybody. I think most people thought he'd wait till after issue one because he was the architect of this thing. And then he'd announce. But if this loses, then if he announces after issue one, everybody would say Frank LaRose, fresh off a humiliating defeat on issue one, announced he's running for the Senate. And I'm wondering if he slipped this through now just in case. Maybe. I mean, it's it's not a surprise that Frank LaRose is running for the Senate. What was it? On July 4th, he had that really hint, hint, nudge, nudge, wink, wink Twitter post about what he was to do filling out his forms. So, I mean, we all... But he put out a press release overnight on a Sunday. Yeah, that is bizarre. You're right. It's strange. And look, Frank LaRose got reelected as Secretary of State last year and his entire campaign, he never once mentioned oh, I'm going to be an architect of an issue that tries to take the power of the voter no. away. Right. Within days of him winning his re-election campaign, he drops this, this idea. I mean, it's one of the sleaziest moves I've ever seen. I mean, this is the guy who, who tries to defend the election system while also trying to erase people's confidence in the election system. He constantly tucks out of both sides of his mouth. And he's you know, one of the architects of this. And Matt Huffman is the other. What's weird is he's from Northeast Ohio, right? We like give all of this. We talk about Matt Huffman and, and Householder and all these people from the rural part of the state. And it, Frank LaRose is from Hudson. He grew up in Northeast Ohio. So I, I don't really understand it. But some of the big counties have had more people signing abortion rights petitions this year than who even voted last August. And so you're really seeing that mobilization. And so I do think that people who care about the abortion issue, even if it's not officially part of this campaign, are going to come out. I also wonder whether the the, the other sign that this thing is in trouble for the proponents is the lack of any advertising by the pro-issue one people. They were talking about a six and a half million dollar campaign with television ads. They haven't had any. And you wonder whether the people they were hoping would donate have their hands up saying, no, no, I'm not going to tie my name to this anti-democratic movement. I, I saw what happened to Bud Light when they got involved in a 
political issue. And I wonder if they're just not getting the money. The television advertising is coming from the abortion folks right. who are petrified of this. Right. Uh, and they're working the churches. I keep getting notes from people in the Catholic church. It sounds like every Catholic church is telling people to vote yes for this because I was in, church. I was in church when I heard that and I was like, okay. <laughs> it's a single issue thing, but exactly. even the Catholic church doesn't get that their parishioners aren't in alignment with them always on abortion. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The people behind Issue 1 are fringe, far-right elected leaders who got their jobs because of the corrupted party primary system through which we pick candidates. It's gerrymandered. The fringiest candidates are the ones who emerge from the primaries when few people vote. And then in November, the rest of us are faced with terrible choices. There does appear to be a better way, which reporter Sabrina Eaton explained over the weekend. Courtney, what is it? Yeah, it's ranked choice voting, which seems to be a growing consideration across the U.S. And it's starting to bubble up as an idea here in Northeast Ohio, too. And and backers of ranked choice voting, you know, compared to the voting we all think of, the traditional voting where you, if you get a plurality of the vote, you walk away the winner. This ranked choice voting system, backers say, kind of guards against special interests, guards against those hyper-partisan kind of primary leanings. It guards against parties and how they kind of impact the, the, the ballot here. And, and let's look a little closer to home where this was starting to gain steam but didn't quite get across the finish line in University Heights. That city's charter commission recommended switching from normal plurality voting to this ranked choice voting system this year. And we'll get into why their city council batted that idea down in a little bit. It's not going to move forward. But the hope was to get people more engaged, feel like their votes counted for more. And and here's how it works. It, basically, every voter ranks multiple candidates on a single ballot in order of preference. This is my first choice. This is my second choice. This is my third choice. And if no candidate gets an initial majority of that first choice vote, then the candidate with the fewest first choice ballots drops out and the ballots for that eliminated candidate are reallocated. Then you just go down the list. So you're not looking at the first choice anymore. You're looking at the second candidate voters preferred. And this really kind of results in, in actually arriving at a majority. And it, it supposedly, you know, guards against that that fringe tendency that you're talking about, Chris. Well, the reason is because if I'm running and there's five candidates, I can't go full Frank LaRose because I'm going to need to appeal to both sides to get enough votes to win. And so unlike the party system where the crazier your antics are in both parties, the more likely it is you'll get elected because you're so fringe. This wipes that out. The, the other part of this is an open primary. If you have an open primary system where anybody can vote, then the candidates that emerge, we all have a say. We all pick. So, you know, Republicans can vote for the Republican. Democrats can vote for the Democrat. Moderates can vote for the moderate. And then in November, we all vote on that that collection of candidates. The sad thing was University Heights Charter Review Commission put this in, actually cited our reporting as part of their official document. And then the city council bailed because I just don't think they have the stomach for such a big change. Well, let, let's talk about what they said here. This is an interesting little side, I guess, tangent to this conversation. You know, city council members there voted this down. There were a handful of issues that they were going to put before voters. They chose not to put this one on this false ballot. But basically, one council member told us 
their reasoning for why they didn't support this. They said the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections doesn't have the equipment right now to deal with it. And they suggested maybe we look at this in the future when the board has the capacity. So we fact checked that with Board of Elections Director Tony Perlotti. And he said right now that is the case. The county's equipment, its software isn't de- isn't designed for ranked choice voting. He said it would take about a year, a little over a year to get this software in place, get the vendor to do what they need them to do to allow for this. At the same time, another city council member at University Heights says, if we go ahead and make this change, the Cuyahoga County Board of Elections has to figure out right. a way to make it work. That's their mandate. Right. So, Right. And they, and you actually could put a time on it. You could say this starts in, in January 2025 to give them the time to do it. Uh, now, I, I thought it was great that the Charter Review Commission did some very thoughtful things. And I thought it was sad that the dysfunctional council, of course, backed off on it. I do think we need to do something. You know, the party primary system was the reform more than a century ago to end the party boss system. But because of gerrymandering and other factors, the party primary system has been completely corrupted and we get terrible candidates as a result and people who won't work together. And with ranked choice voting, you would get people that are much more likely to be moderate, which most of Ohio is. Good story by Sabrina Eaton. It is on Cleveland.com. Check it out. This is Today in Ohio. Let's get back to the story I mentioned a minute ago. We thought we'd be under a siege of issue one ads on television by now, but we really aren't. There's about to be a bunch. Lisa, who's paying for them? What are they going to say? So on Friday, the group called Protect Women Ohio, which is working to defeat the November abortion rights amendment on the ballot, is spending three three million bucks to pass state issue one. Um, they're spending about a million dollars on digital ads, and then two million on a thirty second TV ad that started running, I believe, over this weekend. I haven't seen it yet. The ad does not mention abortion, but it does feature a drag queen, and with the narrative that a yes vote would keep this madness out of Ohio classrooms. So the ads started running on the 15th. They're supposed to run through the 21st, which is this Friday. Uh, Protect Women Ohio spokeswoman Amy Natochi, she attacked the ACLU for its stance on a Republican law change that requires schools to notify parents if their kids use a gender other than their assigned sex at birth. Um, She's she, um, saying this is an attempt to force a dangerous anti-parent amendment into the Ohio Constitution, and that's Exhibit A. And so that's their argument against State Issue 1, one of many. And supporters are worried about being outspent by those opposed to State Issue 1, which has already been running TV ads. They've been carpeting neighborhoods with flyers. So the ads will match about the weekly rotation that's of the anti-issue one ads by one person, one vote. And one person, one vote has been leaning on this as an attack on democracy. But for the first time last week, their ads started to mention abortion. There's another group that started an ad over the weekend that's hilarious. It's an outside group on the more progressive side. And it has it starts with a couple starting to have sex, and all of a sudden they're interrupted by a Republican lawmaker sitting in their bedroom telling them they can't use a condom because the Republicans are in charge now and they don't believe in birth control. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, and again, all over the top. Hey, look, at the heart of this, this is a move to, to fool people into giving up the power of their vote. It, it's, it's taking away all of our ability to 
to use the Constitution to rein in out of control legislators, which is why the Constitution says what it says now. A hundred plus years ago, Ohio got together and said, we can't have out of control legislators. We need this ability. All these ads are going so far afield. I'm, I'm not sure people are going to recognize exactly what's at stake here. Well, and, you know, they, they've they been kind of, you know, leaders have been trying to stay away from saying that it's not about abortion. But then Frank LaRose was quoted to saying it's 100% about abortion. Yeah, it's 100 This is about abortion. If, if issue one goes down, people will vote on abortion in Ohio. We know the majority of Ohioans favor it. The amendment will likely pass. But that's what the majority of Ohioans want. What the Republicans are trying to do is have 40% of the people dictate policy to the 60% of the people, and it's just flat out wrong. So get out there and vote. Early voting is open. Go to the Board of Elections and vote. Get your absentee ballot. Don't wait for August 8th. You're listening to Today in Ohio. The story of Punchy the Bull, the bovine creature found roaming the streets of Cleveland, got a lot stranger Friday. Turns out his name is not Punchy. And he is actually a she. Laura, I cannot understand how this could have happened. I do not understand how anyone could have mistaken udders for some other piece of anatomy here. But it's not a bull. It was reported by Pleaf. This is a female calf. She's Little Miss Punch. So she's in Ravenna, actually, at the Happy Trails Animal Sanctuary, where she's recuperating. She's a little malnourished. If you look at that photo, you're like, yep, she looks like she could definitely use like a nice nice um, heap of hay. But so they said she's our little girl and she's settling in well and decompressing. She's had quite the adventure. We still don't know who she ever belonged to and we may never know. Yeah, that, that that's the weird part of this is that we don't know. And you start to wonder, was this cow stolen or something? I, I just, it's bizarre to me that, that somebody would not stand up to claim their roving cow. It, it's almost like a, a truck broke down in Cleveland carrying it or something. They let it go, but it's just strange that you wouldn't claim it. I just, the first police report on this was about how one of their police officers is an expert because they'd been on a farm or whatever and they wrangled it right. and they determined it was a bull and they couldn't even read the ear tag right. They said his name was Punchy and apparently the ear tag says Punch. Yeah, I don't know. This is... I mean, I, I have no idea how you get this wrong. Like, it feels like if you take one good look, you're like, okay, I understand this. But no, it, this is the story that just keeps giving. Like, because, you know, Friday morning, we had a story saying we still don't know, but she's he, the punch punchy is at this happy trail sanctuary where she, she could be somebody's pet. Of course, when we wrote that story, we used probably he, maybe we used it. But then it broke later in the day. Uh, John Coniglia called me because you're never going to believe this. And he's our crime editor. And I was like, what? And he's like, it's not a bull. It's a cow. And I was like, okay, we have to write another story. <laughs> and, oh, yeah. and you were off and I almost texted you to bother you and be like, you're never going to believe this. But I was like, we'll just, we'll just let it land in your inbox. <laughs> oh no. I, I, when I saw it, I got in touch with an editor who had belittled me for calling this animal a cow to begin with, because obviously I couldn't tell my bull from a cow. So I'll never let him forget that I was right. <laughs> I feel like there's definitely some kind of pun here about no bull, you know? Um, yeah. yeah. So just, many puns. I'd love to know the backstory of this thing. You're listening to Today in Ohio. For too many decades to count, the names of crime victims were considered public record in Ohio and most, if not all, of America. But our gerrymandered legislature rushed through a law without comment recently that changed that. Courtney, why and how did this happen? 
Yeah, this is wild. I can't imagine following crime and not having access to victims' identities, but that is the case here in Ohio now, apparently. So we've been hearing for several years now about Marcy's Law, which offers a lot of, you know, the idea was victims' rights uh, for folks who are victims to crimes. And, and that it took a few years to get that 2017 passed law enacted. But now we have had it on the books for a while and lawmakers rushed through a change to that law that has some pretty wide ranging effects. And this tweak that they moved through basically gives the benefit of the of, of privacy to the victims on the front end. So up until now, even under the prior iteration of the law, Victims' names appeared in police reports, and they appeared in court records unless they specifically asked the court to, to take their names out of the court records. Under this new change, there's a presumption that all victims want this privacy right, and therefore their names are removed on the front end from police department records, which means when you go get that very basic, very first document to understand what happened in a crime in your community, you will no longer see who the victim of that that crime is. We, in our newsroom, we don't use a lot of victim identities. We do for murder cases, but but generally speaking, we, we don't because we recognize that they're usually victims through no fault of their own, and why should they have their names out there on top of that? Uh, but the, the danger of this is accountability. There's also a thought that the police want this because when they shoot somebody, they don't want their names out there and they can claim they're a victim of crime because the reason they had to shoot somebody is they were threatening. And so because the police were under threat, they're victims and they won't be named. That would be sleazy because that's an accountability issue. If police shoot somebody or use excessive force, the public deserves to know who they are. And, and that is happening. We are seeing that. So Columbus police have invoked this, this new part of the law to shield the identities of officers who killed a man in a shootout earlier this month. The Columbus Dispatch reports that the police department down there, it's declining to release the names of the officers who killed this man, citing Marcy's law. And funnily enough, it was the city of Columbus who apparently was among those or a key person who lobbied for this change in law. The city attorney told us basically that there are so many different crimes they investigate that have little chance of being solved or little chance of identifying the perpetrator, that this Marcy's law and this victim's rights process basically resulted in a mound of paperwork, officers having to walk individuals through these victim's rights forms when there really wasn't a chance for justice in a lot of those cases. So basically to cut down on the paperwork, Columbus says that's why they sought this change. Yeah, it is really an accountability issue. It's it's one of those, for instance, when, when we questioned Cleveland's claim that it was losing money on the Kia and Hyundai theft trend that's going on, uh, we we wanted to talk to some of the victims of those crimes to see what they had to say about how they were treated by the city this would be a lot harder now, which is what the city would want. They don't want us to talk to people that are unhappy with the way the, the, the impound lot treated them. And so it just makes life more difficult. We could always do call outs. We have a huge audience and we could say, hey, if your car was stolen, we want to talk to you. But this does hurt accountability. I get that victims don't want to see their names out there. And it, when, when you're a victim, it's through no fault of your own. How is it fair that you get put out for public consumption, 
but I, I do maintain we've done very little of that we stopped using a lot of victim names a long time ago. And it's, you know, worth noting here, one example of kind of what the public loses about knowledge, you know, what's going on in their community. That recent example where we saw two Cleveland Browns players be the victim of a crime downtown, had their cards stolen. We won't learn that anymore if their names aren't in the report. Right. Right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Reporter Adam Faris took a deep dive into the case of Jugo, I think that's how his name, Hugo Vidic, a Parmer Heights busher who was charged earlier this year as a war criminal in the former Yugoslavia. This is one heck of a tale. Lisa, who is he? Yeah, and I think it's Yugo, but I could be wrong. But he is 55-year-old Yugoslav Vidic. He was arrested in Parma Heights recently and charged with lying on his U.S. visa application and about his service in the Yugoslav People's Army uh, back in the 90s. He's a longtime butcher. He's been a butcher since he was 18 back in Croatia. He owned Yugo's Meats in Parma since 2005 and worked for several grocery store chains as a butcher, including Dave's Market and Save-A-Lot. People said he he was good with a knife. But his story starts in 1991 when he joined the Yugoslav People's Army, which was a group of ethnic Serbs who opposed Croatian independence from Yugoslavia. He rose quickly through the ranks of the Red Berets Tactical Unit, became a lieutenant, and then he was part of a group that stormed the Gavrilovic meat processing plant in Croatia where he worked. He was the only one of that group without a mask, like he wanted these people to know it was him. He forced the women employees to strip to their underwears, and then he grabbed a co-worker, Stefan Combs, who had been seen shaking hands with the president of the Croatian Republic, and so he cut Combs' off arm, arm off at the elbow with a knife, and then Combs was tortured by others in the group, and then his body was thrown into a mass grave and not found for a year. So war crime charges were filed against Vidic in 1990 a trial held years later, a five-judge panel found Vidic guilty in 1998 in absentia. They gave him a 20-year sentence, but he had already fled to Belgrade's. He was not present at the trial. In 1999, he moved to Lakewood, Ohio to live with his sister and then ended up in Parma and had various butcher jobs. Um, at the Dave's Market Lee Harvard store, four employees accused Vidic of sexual harassment so bad that the EEOC filed a lawsuit saying there was an open no notorious pattern of harassment. Dave settled for $300,000 and fired Vidic in 2010. And then the Ohio Agriculture Department got involved. They had an investigation that found that Vidic took about 30 to 100 pounds of meat trimmings a month from Save-A-Lot where he worked, and then he used those trimmings to make sausages in his sausage shop. Well, this meat never gets inspected because it's trimming. And he also, in his labels, claimed that he used prime cuts of meat when he obviously wasn't. So his meat selling license was suspended in 2019. He pled guilty to misdemeanor selling uninspected meat but then he was right back at it. A month after he was, you know, convicted, he started doing it again, stealing meat trimmings and making his sausages. And he pled guilty again in 2020. So, yeah, quite a long story and ended up here in Ohio. Yeah, I'm I'm on. I guess I'm confused about how somebody that is in the country, uh, I guess, on exile or whatever, is allowed to stay when he keeps getting caught breaking the law. And then why didn't anybody recognize before now that he's this wanted war criminal that did horrendous things in his former country. Fascinating story that Adam put together. I remember when it first broke, we wondered, I wonder what the backstory is here. 
and it's way more interesting than we surmised. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why has Howard Hanna, a force in the Northeast Ohio real estate industry, pulled its listings from sites like Redfin, where a lot of people look for homes to buy? Laura? They want you to look on the Howard Hanna site, and they want you to register so they have your email address, because everybody wants an email address these days. That's how you get in touch with possible customers. So they began this experimental change three weeks ago. You get more information about the house you're looking at through the Howard Hanna site. But yeah, they're the first major company in the country to do this. And if you look around at for sale signs in Northeast Ohio, I don't know for sure, but it looks like Howard Hanna might be the leader because they are everywhere. So is this just they need to know who's looking? This is a way to make sure they're they're getting the contact information? Yes, basically. And so it's proprietary. So they'll have it. And if you want to look at their stuff, I I think they're big enough in this market that people will do it. It's not like, I mean, I don't think it's going to hurt the houses on the market because they won't see as many possible buyers. I think everybody will just make the adjustment because you don't have to pay or anything. You just have to give over your information. So the CEO of Howard Hanna said, we tried, we did this to try to create more leads and traffic to our website and for our agents who hopefully will sell more of our homes quicker. And they say it's more transparent to buyers because it gives more details and information. I got to think that, I mean, you know, sites like Zillow, I don't know how old they are, but now everybody uses them because they take everything. Um, I would imagine they're going to kind of try to find a way to fight back on well, this. Except, does Howard Hanna lose business then? Because like you said, I think the first place people turn is to Zillow or Redfin. They don't go to the individual realtors. And so does that cost Howard Hanna? If I'm always on Zillow looking at houses, am I more likely to focus on it, what's available there? I think you're not going to get the casual looker, right? The person who drives by a house and is like, ooh, I wonder what that costs. Or like you're just in a neighborhood and you're like, I just want to see the map of like, the home values in this just to get an idea. But if you are looking for a house and as someone, I mean, it's been a while, but if you want a house, you are going to be on everything you possibly can to see as soon as it pops up what is out there because you want to be the first one to see it and you want to be the one to put in the offer if it's the house you want. So I think if you are seriously home shopping, you will have no no problem registering for this. The casual like looker, that might be a problem. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if they stick to this. If six months down the road, they've seen a downturn in their business because they're not right in everybody's face. Yeah, um, I mean, they've gone from 189 people registered to their website from three weeks ago to 2,500 now. So if you if you want to look at a Howard Hanna listing, you got to get on. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. University Hospitals has long provided maternity services in Ashland County, but no more. Courtney, why not? Yeah, UH's Samaritan Medical Center in Ashland is closing its labor and delivery department. That happens on August 8th. Last patients will be admitted a few days before. And the hospital saying it's because of staffing. It doesn't have enough staff here. And this closure means Ashland County is going to have no hospitals offering labor and delivery services. There are a couple alternatives in Lorraine and nearby, but this is it. Samaritan is also the only full-service acute care hospital in the county. But this is somewhat of a wider trend. You know, you're seeing it in Ohio, you're seeing it with UH, you're seeing it in rural communities. Samaritan will be the third labor and delivery department that UH has shut down in recent years. 
Across the state, there's been 28 closures or consolidations in the last dozen years. 11 happened in the last year alone. So this is ongoing. And pregnant patients who expected to deliver in Ashland, they're going to have to work with caregivers to move their care elsewhere. And UH Samaritan is still going to offer other services like They'll still have an OBGYN and midwifery and, and lactation services. But, you know, when we're talking Ashland County, there's an aging population here. There's a birthing decline, 300 births pre-pandemic at Samaritan Hospital, down to an expected 180 this year. We talk a lot, though, about the infant mortality rate in this country and in Cleveland and about maternal health, the, the number of moms, especially those in poverty, who die involving childbirth. You got to think that not having a hospital that's, that can take care of people would affect that. Yeah, I, I, I'm very curious where this leaves folks. As you know, they talk about an aging population in Ashland County. We know population trends, younger folks, childbearing year folks are more likely nowadays to be in cities, more populated areas than their predecessors. It just, it kind of marks this, this shifting demographic change, I'd say. Yeah, but it does create a hardship for somebody. I mean, to drive all the way across the county to, to give birth, it's sometimes you don't have that kind of time. Yeah, the closest is in Lorraine County in Richland, so it's not a quick drive. Okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. That's it for Monday. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks, Courtney. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, everybody who listens to this podcast.